This edition of the ER is brought to you by HSBC. With over 8,000 global relationship managers on the ground in over 60 countries, HSBC makes your global ambition their local business. HSBC, where ambition connects with opportunity. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. Today, I'm joined by FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Also with us is Yoki Driesen, managing editor of FP News and author of The Invisible Front. Finally, we have David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So guys, uh, around the time we recorded this, uh, President Obama was in Cuba, and it was getting a massive amount of attention. And some people were calling it a breakthrough in U.S. relations with the whole hemisphere. And other people were calling it, calling it a, uh, you know, pandering to a dictator. Where do you come out, David? Well, it's pretty simple, I think, uh, David. When you think about what the past 25 years has been in American relations with China, the argument has been that by engaging the Chinese, we will slowly change their behavior, we will open their markets, we'll bring in investors, and the concepts of democracy will seep through the society. And for a while, that worked. And now it's not working. Obviously, the Chinese are in the midst of a giant crackdown. But overall, we feel that we understand a lot more about the Chinese by virtue of the fact that our leadership and their leadership are regularly engaged in meetings, summit meetings, strategic dialogues, and so forth. Cuba is not China. But we've tried one approach since the early 1960s when the embargoes were first put on by President Kennedy. And it has been an utter and complete failure. So my view is, why not, after 60 years of trying something that has totally failed, take a shot at the other way? And this is really a bet about Cuba after the Castros are gone. And uh, that won't be terribly far away. Corey? I, too, favor uh, President Obama's policy change on Cuba uh, for two reasons. The first is that... Intellectually, I find attractive the notion that by isolating a society, you you foster the forces of change. That is, that I I take an even sharper edge on on the purpose of Cuba policy when it was initiated, which is we were hoping to foster regime change by the Cuban people to overthrow their government, um, and it obviously didn't work. So so that's the first objection that. We have data on this, and it didn't work. Um, and we have scarcely ever had as much influence in another society through economic means, geographic proximity, culture, than we have had in Cuba. And and at least in that one test case, policy didn't work. The second thing is that broad sanctions, cutting an entire society off from the world, doesn't punish a dictatorial regime nearly as much as it publishes punishes the already suffering people living under despots. 
Uh, so I think the policy towards North Korea is actually further punishing the suffering people of North Korea. And I feel like Cuba policy also just doubled down on the penalty to people already living under authoritarian societies. So it was long overdue for a change. I think it's great President Obama made this choice. Yeah, there, there were two things about that I thought were really interesting. The one was Cuba had always been sort of that third rail, kind of like support for Israel, social security that nobody would touch for fear that Cuba would blow up within the, the communities in Florida, that Cuban-Americans were so powerful that nobody could dare go against them. And this time, the domestic backlash was mild. You had Republicans tee off on it, but it's not a big issue. It's not something where people are thinking Democrats may lose Florida because of Cuba. Also, I thought it was fascinating the makeup of the, co- of the uh, delegation going with President Obama, particularly the executives from Starwood, that right before this trip was announced, it was announced that the Starwood hotel chain got the big contract to start building the new luxury hotels in Cuba. And that clearly is the opening. The opening isn't simply preparing, although, Corey, I agree, for the post-Castro regime. It's for what happens when Cuba begins to again be this gigantification spot and all the money that's all the money that's there, all the billions, if not tens of billions of dollars that are just waiting for someone to take, and an American company just took them. So basically we're saying this is an idea whose time came a long time ago and that the president um, is right to be doing what he's doing. Um, but uh, do we think it actually has any kind of longer-term implications? I mean, Cuba seems, you know, it was once strategically significant, but at the moment it seems to have the strategic significance of, say, Trinidad and Tobago. So, you know, what, what could possibly be the bigger, longer-term benefits that come from this, given that this is kind of a tiny, poor island nation that really doesn't pose a threat to us any longer uh, in any material way? Well, David, I, I, uh, I think you've struck right at the heart of this, which is it's no longer of any strategic significance. It hasn't been of strategic significance to us since the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, so at this point, it's really what's kept presidents from doing this in the past. And Bill Clinton wanted to do this in the mid-90s and sent Sandy Berger off to go figure, off ways, figure out ways to do it. What's kept from happening has completely been domestic politics, just uh, what Yoki was suggesting, that Florida and New Jersey had these constituencies that were very significant on this issue. What's happened since is that that generation has largely died away. Uh, a younger generation of Cubans are eager to get the investment going and they're ready with a lot of money on the sidelines. Um, the fact that once the president announced this move in late 2014, what you heard with the exception of a couple of Republicans on the outside was basically resounding silence tells you that all of the potency of the political issue here has gone away. Now, that said, Cuba has largely been the outlier in Latin America. And so there's more of a sense that it's it's reigning in the last big opponent other than Venezuela to the United States more than that this is going to have huge impact changing the rest of Latin America, which I don't think it will. I don't think it will have huge impact. <clears throat> and thankfully, it looks like the authoritarian uh, uh, wave is probably too strong a term, but Venezuela, Bolivia, other places that looked like they that either were authoritarian or were trending authoritarian, you know, the people of Bolivia just rejected the constitutional change that would have allowed Correa to run for a third term, um, and 
Venezuela is falling through the floorboards uh, really fast. So forcing Cuba to compete on the same terms that everybody else in Latin America has to justify their government to their public on is, I think, a hopeful trend for the Cubans because I think most Latin Americans test drove this uh, 40 years ago. Some of them test drove it 10 years ago. And as long as they get to vote them out of power, it looks like, you know, over the long term, the, de- the appeal of free markets and free societies has won over in Latin America. I think it's also interesting that... Just if, as authoritarianism is catching on in the U.S. Right. I mean, if one was going to be generous, and I feel like the multiple people about to slap me down for saying so, the fear potentially with Cuba was the Castro brothers fall, the country goes into chaos, and you've got a wave of immigrants trying to get by boat from Cuba to Florida, as was the case in the 80s to a degree, as was the case in the early 90s. If you're going to be generous, you might say this is a subtle U.S. attempt to try to help build a framework so that when the Castro transition, you don't have a collapse of the government and you don't have a wave of thousands of people trying to get out of a chaotic country to get to Florida. Admittedly, I think it's a generous read, but I also don't think it's totally uh, totally out of line or, or out of bounds. Well, also, you've had thousands and thousands of Cubans coming into the United States during the past year through Mexico. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, that Mexico's, they go into Latin America, they come up through Mexico, and they come on in. I, th- I The number is thousands. I'm not sure whether it's 7,000 or 17,000, but it's something in that range. Well, David, the wall will take care of that, no doubt, and and maybe the Cubans will pay for their piece of it. By the way, you know, as we, I think we've said before on this uh, broadcast, has been the, built. The wall is actually there. <laughs> yes. Right. So, but I think that I think that the significance of President Obama bringing the business executives was one. Obviously, if you can create some economic incentive there, uh, then you're not going to have as many refugees. But secondly. It's his way of making permanent this opening. Since, since Congress won't do this and it's just too hard to vote, once you actually begin to have the business community invested in Cuba and you start to have these direct flights and those hotels start to fill up with visitors uh, again, then I think what you're going to see is a, a large constituency here not to reverse course no matter who gets elected. So this is making the Caribbean safe for tourism again? Well, you know, that's what Cuba was in the era of our grandparents. You know, that was the trip that everybody sort of, you know, took from uh, from the East Coast. And uh, you can imagine that happening again if they avoid the huge mistake of making Havana look like South Beach or look like Las Vegas uh, I mean, the reason people want to go to that old part of Havana that you saw President Obama and his wife and kids walking around in in those great photos from last night is that it looks like old Havana. And if the first thing they do is knock that down and Singaporeize it, then you know what's going to happen. I love that verb, Singaporeize it. <laughs> well, you know, but you know, I, I, there have been uh, some, including some Cubans like Yanni Sanchez, who've noted that. You know, those old cars and quaint buildings um, are not charming. They're a sign of a failed economy, a uh, repressive society, and the fact that this place is frozen in time. And it's not just because of the embargo, because the rest of the world hasn't had an embargo. But you can keep the facade and have the nice Starwood Hotel behind it. I was just in uh, Berlin last week, 
And, you know, the big thing in cars in, in Berlin is to take the old Travant and pull out all the non-working innards, put in a working engine, and then show up at a party on Saturday night in an East German car. I mean, how cool is that? So, you know, if the, if the Cubans look around, they're going to figure this out pretty fast. Yeah, well, the problem is that the Cubans have not figured out how to run their economy in 60 years. Yeah, but they're now going to get a little help in that direction. Well, the rest of the world's been helping them. So I think that it can be both charming and a sign of a dysfunctional economy. But I vote with David on this one. I suspect uh, Cuba... Well, since both of us are named David, that's a stance. <laughs> David Sanger on this one. Hey, was there a question there really? <laughs> <laughs> um, because I, I don't doubt at all that Cubans are entrepreneurial enough to find a way to keep what looks charming to outsiders without themselves being burdened with houses without washing machines or, you know, drawers that run on ball bearings and all the great stuff that makes us not want to own antiques. I mean, I like that there were hundreds upon hundreds of people within Cuba who put their apartments on Airbnb almost immediately before this trip started. So there's some people there who get the modern economy. Right. Just interested. You guys seem to be discounting altogether the fact that Cuba has a dysfunctional government that has been screwing up its economy for decades. And as much as the U.S. policy has been ridiculous, if, in fact, we are now moving towards a normalized policy, the thing that we have to recognize is that we are now going to have normal relations with a dysfunctional, centrally planned, repressive regime that has done a lousy job for its people since day one. I think you're describing China 25 years ago, aren't you, David? I was just going to say it's a large category of countries that fit that. <laughs> well, guys, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm coming out in a slightly different place. This is not China. This is a country that's been engaged with the rest of the world for decades. In fact, the, probably the most significant thing about opening up Cuba is that it removes an impediment in our relations with the rest of the hemisphere because they all thought we were crazy for having this policy. But having said that, it also is a sign that the Cubans haven't been able to take advantage of foreign investment, which has been flowing in there for years. Um, and, you know, their society is not working extremely well. And having, you know, opening to America um, is not necessarily going to be the, 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 you know, sort of magic bullet that you seem to think it is. So I agree with you that governance plays a huge role in a society's prosperity, and Cuba is Exhibit A, where a government that doesn't understand economics, even if you give it the benefit of the doubt and suggesting that they were trying to run the country well, it is clearly a poor country that, that has lots of ways in which it could be much more prosperous, whether... Uh, whether our embargo and our lack of diplomatic relations made it easier for the government to justify bad choices is, for me, the question. And there the Iran parallel, I think, might be interesting, right? Because the Iranian government does not want the kind of economic openness that that uh, the end of sanctions may create. They're clearly fraught about this because they're the main economic beneficiaries of an opaque, closed system, and especially IRGC-related companies. What these sanctions have done, beneficial as they have been for changing the, the government's attitude, they have also masked how badly the government has run the economy. 
And I think there are some folks who are hopeful that the end of sanctions on Iran will actually shine a spotlight on the government's bad choices. And I don't see why the end of sanctions on Cuba won't create the same dynamic there, which is a more accountable government. They got nobody else to blame. I think also, you know, at least when you look from a distance, Cuba has the rudiments of what could be a functional society, potentially without too much time. They have beaches, they have tourism, they have a very literate populace, they have a great medical system, which is why they keep shipping Cuban doctors to other countries across Latin America, sort of a soft power exercise. So you take a country that has beaches, tourism, an educated workforce, a literate workforce, and decent medical system, I don't think you can have to look that far out to say, maybe with a bit of guidance and a bit of investment, it becomes a functional country more quickly than other countries we've tried to fix. Let's take Afghanistan 15 years in, which is obviously a, a smashing sign of governance, literacy, and other wonderful things. David, clearly the only way to resolve this difference of opinion that we have here is to take the entire ER podcast crew <laughs> with your beneficence and go down and broadcast the next one from the beach in Cuba with a very large colorful drinks and then just sign the bill over to you. It's a typical suggestion. <laughs> it's not it's neither constructive nor is it going to Happen, but I think it's constructive. <laughs> oh, there you go. All of us are on orbits right now trying to find it on Expedia find it, and Travelocity. It's amazing that you guys, who are normally sort of so circumspect about these things, somehow think that the missing link for Cuba is the United States because the rest of the world has been engaged with Cuba, has been lending them advice, has been investing there has been trying to do these kind of things. But they don't have the motivation of the Cuban-Americans who have been waiting in the wings, and we all know many of them, with large amounts of money and a huge amount of drive on this for a long time. And I, I'm not suggesting it's going to create an overnight uh, you know, change in Cuba. And I don't think Obama's suggesting that either. But it's a big addition to the firepower that, that you would have to try to bring about the change. Now, at some point, the country learns how to be resistant to change, and you've seen that in Iran, uh, and uh, you've certainly seen it in China. Yeah, and you've seen it in Cuba. Um, all right, let's take a break here because we're going to have a word from our sponsor, and then when we come back, I'd like to talk about the rest of Latin America. This edition of the ER is brought to you by HSBC, winner of Trade Finance America's 2016 Company Award for Best Supply Chain Finance Bank in North America. HSBC, where ambition connects with opportunity. Okay, and we're back. So President Obama is going from Cuba to Argentina. Uh, many people have said the Argentina stop is more important than the Cuba stop. What do you think, Corey? I don't think it's more important than the Cuba stop because President Obama going to Cuba is so symbolic of, you know, it's 60 years of change policy. But I do think it's a wonderful choice to go to Argentina to reward uh, the peaceful change of power that finally, finally uh, got uh, Christina out of power and brought in a government that is worried about the right kind of economic fixes, that feels itself accountable to the people of Argentina. Um, the, the prior government was trending so dangerously that there were serious doubts about whether they would actually permit themselves to be voted out of power. Um, 
and the you know the importance of putting someone uh, the international financial community trusts to dig through the economic statistics and make them reliable again. The settling of the case with the outstanding investors that will allow them to return to international financial markets. These are all really positive signs. And I love it that the president's headed there to reward uh, the people of Argentina making a choice that makes their democracy more vibrant. Although, you know, he's also there at a kind of interesting moment for their democracy in that you have the prosecutor probing the certain murder of Alberto Nisman, the prosecutor who had been himself looking into signs that the prior government had basically collaborated with Iran to cover up Iranian involvement in a terror attack, saying that the investigation continues, that he's continuing to push, that his, he's hinting that strongly that he believes it was homicide, not suicide, like the government has said for so long. This case is so bizarre and so fascinating, and you so want to laugh at it, except that in the end of it, someone died. But it's just so... 1960s noir, like a guy's found dead and there's a gunshot and it's not clear where the wound was from and the government says it was suicide. Nobody believes it. It's just a fascinating case. And the fact that the case is still going and if anything accelerating, to my mind, makes the timing even more interesting. The Neesman case is fascinating, um, not only for what it tells you about um, the conspiracy theories and all that, and the more we've delved into it, the more we confused, I would say, in many ways we've become because the evidence really is conflicting, but also what it tells you about sort of the state of the Argentina polity at this point. And so I think President Obama is going a little bit in the thought that that he can nudge them. But let's face it, we're in the last year of a presidency here. And uh, this is what presidents do in their last year. They go out to places that either are going to cement their legacy, Cuba is one of them, or go to places that haven't seen a U.S. president in a while uh, where you think you can do some marginal good. And Argentina is one of them. We, we have... Um, we saw this at the end of the Bush presidency. You certainly saw it at the end of Bill Clinton's presidency. He took his big trip to Vietnam just in the very last weeks that he was president. And uh, if you look at the president's traveling schedule between now and uh, January 20th of uh, 2017, there are more than a few of these. Well, you know, I saw a tweet last night from a, a respectable foreign policy expert who said this Cuba opening is going to produce a revolution in our relations with the Western Hemisphere. And what the guy was getting at was that, you know, Cuba was an impediment in all the relationships because everybody thought we were nuts for having this failed policy for so long. Um, And that, you know, caused some disagreement periodically on the edges of uh, events on, uh, on the Americas. But, you know, the visit to Latin America reveals something. And, 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 and one of the things that I think that it reveals is how um, empty our policy is to the region. I mean, basically what the president does is he goes and he visits and he says hello and there's a photo op. Um, and, you know, I'm glad he's going to recognize that there's a positive change in this country. But you can't really have a revolution in, in, in American policy in a region where we don't actually have any policy. Um, I mean, can you guys think of some area where we actually have a priority that's in the top, say, 25 that has to do with the Americas, with the possible exception, I'm going to set aside, of our own southern border? I think Colombia policy across the last three administrations has been outstanding. 
and has helped that country uh, be the only successful uh, fighter of an insurgency, right? That, That we have across three administrations not taken the lead on Columbia policy, but provided the government the support that it wanted in order to to bring the terrorist threat down, to deal with the rebels, and to get to a peace agreement. I think Colombia policy has been great, but I take your general point, David, that I don't know what our policy on Brazil is, and it's supposedly, you know, one of the most counterweights of the region. I don't know what our policy on Mexico is besides decrying violence and, you know, not controlling guns or drugs. I mean, there's a sort of interesting chicken and egg question, right? Do we not have a policy because the average American really couldn't care less? Or do you flip it on its head? You know, except for Zika, when suddenly people remember that there's a Latin America that sort of matters, or Petrobras, if you follow stock and you think, oh, my God, this tens of billions of dollars in this company may have gone missing or may have been misspent. Uh, there's violence in Colombia. You remember Colombia. But if you don't care as a country, and we don't, we very clearly don't care, so it sort of takes it off the list of priorities for a White House. I mean, if you're a White House and you come in and you figure the country cares about Russia and they care about China and they care about the Middle East, and frankly, those three things look like they may explode at any time, those will, I think, by definition, become the top nine of the top ten things you worry about. And if Latin America isn't one of those things, it's easy to forget about. So so threats are what make the top of our priorities, not opportunities. And I would submit to you, gentlemen, that the opportunity, the biggest, richest ripest opportunity that we are missing is with Mexico and with the integration of North American energy grids, integration of trade beyond where we are, hard as that would be to do in a sensible way in this political season. But Mexico's changing in such wonderful, positive ways, and we are missing all sorts of chances to capitalize on that. So I take that as a veiled attack on the Republican Party and Marco Rubio in particular for blocking having a U.S. ambassador to this country since last July. Is that correct, Corey? I do think American national interests are best served when we have ambassadors in countries where we want to have good diplomatic relations. And actually, they're even more important in countries where we have bad diplomatic relations. Well, it's just, it's ridiculous that we don't have an ambassador for a year to the country on our border, which is one of our most important allies, neighbors, trading partners, um, you know, on, on the planet. And this is a, another sign, you know, what? how does the region look at this? How does the region look at it that we can't even get our act together enough to have an ambassador to Mexico? I also like that so many world leaders have sort of hinted and winked, nodded how much they dislike Donald Trump. And then you've got Mexico, where the current president likened him to Mussolini and Hitler. The previous president routinely lets F-bombs fly while talking about Trump and says he's bleeping well, this Trump, and bleeping Trump that. Is, Trump is vilifying Mexicans, you know, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, a concern to Mexican leadership because they say, look, to the extent to which Trump is successful vilifying Mexicans, right. other politicians are going to try it. It's more but than it's a concern. A it's an slow. outrage. Well, it's obscene. It's also you know, offensive in kind of the deepest ways possible uh, because it's racist and it's against every tradition in the U.S. It also is stupid. You know, the Latin population in the United States, which in a couple of decades is going to pass 100 million people, seven out of 10 members of that population have a Mexican grandmother. In other words, seven out of 10 members of the Latin community in the United States have a strong family tie to Mexico. And 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 it's 
you know, this vital, important part of the U.S., and, and we've got a candidate running against a segment of our own society. Uh, sounds to me like a point you'll be hearing from uh, uh, Hillary Clinton probably from uh, July or August every day through to November. Yeah, well, as, as well it should be. Well, we still have a couple of minutes for one of these rare discussions of Latin America. Um, you know, the, the while the president's going to Cuba, and that's significant kind of because it's correcting something that's been wrong in U.S. policy for 60 years, and while he's going to Argentina, and that's significant because of, of, of the, the change that's taken there politically, by far the biggest story that's happening in the Americas right now is the complete and utter political meltdown in Brazil, where here is uh, one of the largest countries in the world, a country with a, a democratic tradition uh, recently that, that it has struggled to uphold, uh, and a corruption scandal on a scale unlike, I guess, any that we've seen. Um, I, I think probably Chinese corruption is larger, but we haven't really seen the full totality of that. Uh, and it looks like the president of Brazil may get forced out of office, um, and yet doesn't have much traction here in the U.S. What, 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 how, how important do you think this is, David? Well, I think it... It could be important, the, the scene over the weekend of uh, the judge, or I guess on Friday, basically um, saying that, no, you cannot make the previous president, Lula, your chief of staff, simply to avoid uh, prosecution, um, told you that there was some um, continued independence uh, in the Brazilian judiciary. I thought it was a little bit refreshing. But this drama has only begun to play out. And uh, what the real shame here is that it, back in the days, David, when you were in the Commerce Department, I think you know, Brazil was considered to be the country that could be the biggest single powerhouse, uh, both uh, economically and in some ways politically, uh, 20 years on. And this seems to me to be um, an example of a country stepping on its own progress. Actually, wasn't Brazil still a Portuguese colony when David was in the Commerce Department? Yeah, but David was, David was doing it through Portuguese diplomacy. And he uh, was, the main thing was he was doing it in Portuguese, which I thought was really— I That's thought, impressive. I worked on the small team we had trying to build support for the papal line of demarcation. <laughs> And immediately every listener goes to Wikipedia to find out what the hell is the papal line of demarcation. Um, no, what's so great about the listeners on this podcast is they, they already know. know. Yeah. You underestimate our nerdership. Um, I guess say Brazil stories for me are the most fun to edit because the, each one gets sort of more bizarre. The judiciary leaks recorded phone calls between the current president and the, the former president. I love the name Operation Car Wash. It's so weirdly benign sounding and yet so fascinating and it brings in dozens of corrupt government officials and generals and police officers and corporate executives. And it's one of the stories that is so massive. Petrobras is such a gigantic, wealthy company, one of the biggest energy powerhouses on the planet. And it, it, it just doesn't get straight news. Everything you hear from Brazil is bad. It's got corruption, check. It's got Zika, check. It's got waters that are so dangerous to the Olympics that people don't want to swim in them, check. The Olympics are going to be a catastrophe, check. It's just bizarre and sad. So I agree with David Rothkopf that this is a hugely important story. And it's especially important because you have a country that has billed itself as a democracy, 
but that really doesn't have that kind of free and vibrant media that keeps the rest of our governments honest and and corruption in manageable proportions. And you see the emergence, as David Roth, excuse me, as David Sanger has rightly suggested, of the other institutions of government, in particular the courts, trying to push forward um, checks and balances and accountability in the society. So it will be hugely important whether the system is permitted to work in terms of bringing Rousseff before the Senate and impeachment hearing and the role of the courts in it. I, I agree it's a very important story, but I'm not sure it's more important than the collapse of Venezuela. David Rothkopf. We'll, we'll, we'll see how long that collapse of Venezuela takes. It's, it's, it's kind of one of those slow motion train wrecks. Um, and I think that what's happening in Brazil right now is reaching a point of criticality and but I take your point. These are these are both big, important stories that are not being addressed. I think there are other big stories in the hemisphere that are not being well addressed. You know, um, uh, the Obama administration uh, responded to the arrival of a lot of children at our southern border um, by firming up the border and coming up with policies to keep those children in Central America in countries that are racked by murder and violence. Uh, and and the plight of those children has gotten much, much worse. I think that's a pretty horrific story uh, worthy of some attention as well. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, 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 th I, th I think we can go on. You know, I mean, there, 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 there are other big stories in the hemisphere from environmental, climate stories, water-related stories, El Nino to uh, stories of inequality and also stories of growth. Um, that never ever make it into the news in the United States, um, and you know it's 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 kind of appalling. Uh, you know, my guess is this Brazil story doesn't really enter anybody's consciousness until the Olympics start. But the Olympics make it all the more important for them to get their act together fairly quickly because they don't want this drama playing out while the entire world and lots of correspondents and cameras. Are, are sitting there. Well, it's true, and I think they will try to get it to work out. And I think, you know, I mean, there is a flip side, right? The flip side is that the oligarchs in Brazil didn't get away with it. You know, there are billion, you know, rich, rich Brazilians who are going to jail for a long, long time here. Uh, Lula was an incredibly popular leader, and it's very sad to see his legacy um, uh, uh, undone in this way, but uh, it seems quite clear that there are plenty of people who are willing to stand up to him and stand up to the in-office president if, in fact, they were involved in this corruption. And that is, after all, how a system's supposed to work, right? You know, it's interesting because you have, the, obviously, the massive corruption in Russia that we were paying more attention to before the Sochi Olympics. Those Olympics went off relatively smoothly. Now we have the massive corruption in Brazil ahead of those Olympics, and I think we can probably safely assume those Olympics will not go off remotely as smoothly, even if only because of the water. I just can't get enough of knowing how disgusting the water is that the Olympics are meant to be taking place on. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's absolutely true. Um, and we've managed to go in this discussion of the hemisphere the whole time without <laughs> mentioning Canada once. Take that, Ted Cruz. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was just a state dinner for the Canadians. What more do you want, David? 
Um, I don't know. I, I think we could learn a lot from Canada. Uh, it's kind of nice to have a country uh, in this neck of the woods that has a president who's an avowed feminist. And so good-looking. Just so, so good-looking. Glad to have your point of view on that, yeah. Some, we were all thinking it. <laughs> well, okay. Maybe, maybe we are. Um, do you think, as a final question, that any of this stuff is going to enter into the calculus for the 2016 election, given um, the growing uh, importance of Latino vote, or is there actually no real connection between the Latino vote and policy in this hemisphere? I'm not sure there is no connection between Latino vote and policy in the hemisphere, but I don't believe Cuba, Argentina, or Brazil will weigh heavily in the 2016 presidential election. I, I think it will only to the degree that the immigration issue becomes you know, more and more central, particularly if Donald Trump gets a nomination and continues on the line that he's on, which I think at this point would be just almost impossible for him to to back down from. But I think the broader question of um, our relations with Latin America are not likely to be a big factor. And the politics of the moment, just watching the reactions to President Obama's visit to Cuba, including with some Republican senators on board Air Force One who came down with him, I think tells you that that issue has been pretty well neutralized. And if you would thought that was possible, you know, during the Clinton administration when they did try to do this, as we said, and 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 failed, uh, you know, it's it tells you something about the remarkable change in the politics of the Cuba the Cuba issue. Yeah, I think it's interesting that when we talk about the election, it's always focused on the ground game and on turnout, and can you get Latino voters to turn out in, in numbers as higher higher. But some of the statistics on how many new voters are registering, so it's not simply the turnout of the existing voters, it's the gigantic numbers of furious Latinos across the U.S., particularly in states like Colorado, Nevada, really competitive states, registering to vote specifically to vote against Trump. That to me is fascinating. We shall see how this all plays out, uh, and we will undoubtedly talk about it in some upcoming episode of the ER. Uh, so we ask our listeners to come back for one of those. Uh, there'll be another one next week, as there is every week. In the meantime, thank you, David. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Yuki. Uh, and that's it for this edition of the ER. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.